If you're hearing this, it means that you're subscribed to the public podcast feed and only hearing the first half of the conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast, consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Welcome to the Howl in the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. Howl in the Wilderness features deep and insightful conversations with renegade artists, philosophers, psychologists, and spiritual teachers who are working on the edge of dominant culture to recover and revive soul and people and the planet. On this episode, I speak with Stephanie Mackay. Stephanie is an educator and mentor in earth-based skills and ancestral ways, located on Gabriola Island, British Columbia. Stephanie and I first met when I attended one of her mythology club sessions and found that we shared a common passion for tending to old stories in a way that reveals their deeper layers of meaning. In the first part of our conversation, we talk about her transition from being a video artist to becoming a wilderness educator and her 12-year participation in Martine Prechtel's school, Bolat's Kitchen. In the second half, we take a deep dive into the old Germanic folktale Iron Hans, also known as Iron John, the subject of Robert Bly's seminal 1990 book. Stephanie offers some unique insights into the historical layers of the story that are fascinating and surprising. Even though I've read Bly's book many times over the past 30 years, and recently conducted an eight-week online group where we read and reflected on the story, Stephanie's insights open up a whole new area of inquiry for me. In the audio version of part two, I've included an afterword where I share some of that research. If you have any interest in this story or in pre-Christian European culture and spiritual traditions, I highly recommend that you check it out. It'll only be available to Howl in the Wilderness Patreon members. You can become a member for only a few dollars a month and you'll receive access to special bonus features and early release of all full episodes. Join the pack over at patreon.com forward slash Howl in the Wilderness. Thanks for listening. going um do you pronounce your last name mckay or mckay um let's go with mckay i've pronounced it mckay my whole life but i'm actually just i've been doing some research on my last name and there's i'm looking at the possibility of of going mckay but um i was my whole life it's been mckay so we'll we'll just leave it at that okay well, thanks for joining me, Stephanie. It's been something I've been looking forward to, for sure. Mm, thank you. It's absolutely an honor to be here. And uh, I'm excited and also have been looking forward to this. So thank you for having me. Nice. Mm-hmm. So maybe we could start, if uh, if you would, just introduce yourself, uh, where you live, and mm-hmm. a little bit about your work, maybe. Mm-hmm, for sure. So I am currently living on um, what we now call Gabriola Island. It's in the Stenemuk territory. And um, I've been living here for a total of about eight, eight years, eight or nine years. Um, I went, I grew up in, you know, the Vancouver area and spent a number of years in Montreal and Alberta and found my way back here and um, I came back to 
Gabriola. I've been lived here a couple different times. I came back about uh, four years ago. And at that point, started a wilderness school called Fiona Wilderness School. And also at that point, started um, a very humble gathering called Mythology Club, which has grown since then. Um, and I run programs, you know, nature-based programs for youth and adults, both here on Gabriola and also up in the Comox Valley. And um, the, the school was co-founded with Kester Reed. Um, co-director also of the school and we've been growing it ever since and there's 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 several different paths that the school takes um, there's more you know earth-based skills there's more uh, soul inquiry and right alongside that there's the mythology track so that's mm. what we're weaving together in our little school mm. and well we met because i was speaking to tad hargrave on the podcast mm -hmm. a while back and the story of iron john came up mm -hmm. and he uh he said oh you should talk to stephanie mckay she had some interesting insights about that story and so uh very shortly after that as these kind of synchronicities happen you were doing a mythology club gathering um mm -hmm up island from where I am and uh yeah so we met there and then I'm really just intrigued uh well many aspects of your work actually the whole wilderness education part of it and how mythology and story work fits into that and uh you're also I think the first person I've spoken to on the podcast who studied with Martine Prechtel mm. uh you know I've had Bill Plotkin on the show uh, who I think you've also studied at Animus Valley. Yeah. Um, and I've had, you know, Michael Mead on a few times and I've had people speak about Robert Bly, some of the people that Martine came up with. Uh, but yeah, I don't think I've ever spoken to anyone who's studied with him. So I'm going to ask you a little bit about that, your time in his school. Sure. Um, but so you just started the school four years ago. What yeah. were you doing before that? Did you have a kind of a more conventional career beforehand? No, okay. I, I was just scanning back in my brain of have I ever had a conventional career? Um, I was working at various different uh, nature schools or uh, wilderness based organizations prior the sort of fi five years prior to that. It's my second career. My first career, I was actually a video designer um, when I lived in Montreal. And I did for I did that for about 13 years um, as a video artist. and then had a, a a moment where it was clear that that was not the direction that I wanted to go in my life. And that's when I started looking into um, more of the earth-based skills. And that was also the point at which Martine's book, Secrets of the Talking Jaguar, came into my life. And I had read maybe about half of it. And at that point, I just knew that I had to study with this man and it went from there. Mm. Well, I don't know if you know this about me, but I spent about uh, 12 years working as a graphic designer in Toronto. Oh, no way. And then when I was in my early mid thirties, I had a, you know, big existential crisis, like, mm -hmm. Oh my God, I've been 
following this path and climbing the corporate ladder only to realize the ladder was against the wrong wall the whole time. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started kind of digging back into uh, some of these teachers like James Hillman and, and Jung and Joseph Campbell and, you know, trying to figure out like, God, how do I find my true path in this life? Um, mm-hmm. so, it sounds like a very similar experience. <laughs> all too common experience. Although I don't yeah. know, some, pe- some people don't hear the call when it comes, I guess. No, no, they don't. That's okay. Yeah. But you've, I guess you've always been a kind of creative person then. Well, I think I had a, a sort of a, a latent creativity um, that I really struggled to express um, sort of through my teens and um, through university. Um, I went to university, um, I have a degree in, in literature, um, which actually is cycling back around into my life, which is wonderful. Very happy about that. Um, but I ha- I felt a very strong urge to create and be creative but had no outlet and as much as the you know media arts path was not my long-term path it was the first place that I really found an outlet for my creativity and I was just blown away with what I could do um, on a computer and it really opened up a huge world for me. And I managed to find myself walking amongst um, quite a community of incredible artists and um, around the world. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for it. Um, and, and there was, yeah, then there was just this point where it was just clearly that's not my creativity needs to go in a, a different direction. And and so I think through through story and through handwork and crafting and um, being on the land, that's really where where the creative desire and my heart and my soul found a, a place together. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think it's true for me, too, that like the career in graphic design was like, kind of the best compromise I could find between my creative impulse and a, a more kind of conventional life where you're making enough money to live in the city and, and all of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But at a certain point, I just felt like uh, uh, it was doing something to my soul uh, mm-hmm. working. Cause as I w- went up the corporate ladder, the jobs got less and less kind of arts focused, community focused and more corporate focused. Mm-hmm. And I found myself uh just being like an idea machine for big corporations. And Mm -hmm. that started to really wear me down. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. We, we had this brilliant idea when we were, you know, young artists that there was sort of a group of us in Montreal and we had this brilliant idea that we were going to fund all of our personal artistic projects with our corporate work. (laughs) Yeah. The Robin Hood approach. Exactly. And so, you know, we, we started doing, this more corporate video work and uh it it just sucked all of the life out of me there was definitely some of the artists that I worked with that were still able to do both but for sure I couldn't hold both and so the corporate stuff just took over and I found the more soul-based personal artistic expression just got trampled 
Um, mm. So the two, the two couldn't live together in my world. Hmm. And so, um, I mean, Secrets of the Talking Jaguar is such a kind of great gateway book for mm-hmm. Martine's work, right? Mm-hmm. Like so many people I talked to, that's the first one that kind mm-hmm. of grabbed them. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it? I mean, you're, you're a person from Canada. Um, read this book about this guy's shamanic initiation in what, Guatemala, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was it about that that stirred your soul? I can remember the passage that I read that was this the moment where I knew that I had to study with him. And it was, I think it was really, you know, it doesn't matter where the story was, where he was or where his life was unfolding or um, it was really the essence of what he was going through and ultimately for me it was the relationship with the natural world that was cultivated through his shamanic initiation um i never had visions of going down the shamanic path which is not what bolad's kitchen is at all martin school bolad's kitchen it's not about shamanic training or anything like that um but it was really you know the deep attunement and um, awareness and connection with the natural world and with the other than human world and the spiritual world. And that's really what, what drew me in. Um, Yeah. Mm. And uh, I mean, it's a big journey to go Mm -hmm. down to his school in uh, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And I think he requires a commitment from his students, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so was that a difficult decision for you? Uh, was it hard to make that happen? At that time in my life, it was really easy. It it became harder as the years went on. Um, he, they do ask for a four-year commitment when you first register. Um, there are certainly people who don't stay for the four years. Um, but that's that's their request and and hope when people are coming in um so yeah because i had had that that i call it the lightning bolt moment where i knew i was going down the wrong path and um and was also at a point in my video career that um you know that was about 8 years in to my video career i I had come to a place of, you know, financial security with that career and also with security within the industry so that I had, you know, enough of a name. I was connected with a company that had enough of a name that I didn't have to say yes to every contract or every project. And so I had the immense privilege of um, financial means and time in my life to to take off and and go down to New Mexico um where my teen school is so that everything sort of came together at that point in my life where it was easy it was fairly easy for me to it basically was a two-week commitment twice a year um to go down and 
and I had the capacity at that point to do it. My life shifted over the course of the 12 years of my life that I was going down there and it became much harder it because it is it's a huge commitment financially and time-wise and um and spiritually it's a huge commitment and I felt very dedicated to that commitment commitment the whole time and I'm no longer studying with him for a number of reasons but it was never you know the decision of oh is it time for me to you know continue my journey without going down there um, was never a, a moving away from the teachings or um, from the path, but just moving away from going down there, uh, the time and the financial commitment. Mm -hmm. So when you got there the first time, was there any uh, kind of shock? Like, you know, you probably formed an image of him in your mm -hmm. eye and, and what it's going to be like to be with him and Mm -hmm. Was there a shock between the fantasy and the reality when they met? No, there wasn't. Um, I certainly, I, I would imagine that everybody goes through this with any teacher that they study with over a long period of time. There is, you know, fluctuations. There are moments when, at least when, when I questioned and, you know, wondered, uh, is this really matching up with who I am and what my path is? Um, but no, for the first long while, I mean, it's, it's an amazing journey. And the, you know, when we go there, there's a giant Adobe hall and um, that we study in with him. And it's, absolutely spectacular and the whole hall is um, built um, with a deep spiritual understanding of each part and how it's laid out and arranged and um, it's absolutely magnificent what uh, Martine has built and has sustained and offers to um, to all of his students there there was one time we were um we were working with pottery and we were firing our little clay pots that we had made um little in size magnificent in their um beauty but um we were firing them and uh we were all standing around the fire with this big outdoor fire and all our pots were inside the fire and we were singing um to to the pots and we were singing to them as they are being birthed into this world. And Martine rode up on his horse and um, did this whole basically dance around us with his horse uh, while we were all singing. And, uh, you know, that just went straight to my heart. And the, the beauty of that moment um, really was just an example of the beauty that continued to grow and um, be revealed to me in, in my life there and also my life here. So it took a while for me to, to come to the place of any kind of questioning or yeah, discord in my fantasy versus the reality. Hmm. Hmm. 
I think it's rare these days to um, expect people to commit to something even as long as four years with one teacher. I mean, mm -hmm. we're kind of like in the time of the spiritual smorgasbord, like take a little bit from here, a little bit from there. Mm -hmm. It's not feeling right. Move on. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the most rewarding relationships I've had with uh, older teachers is the ones that maybe are the most difficult to sustain mm. through the periods of uh, doubt and disillusionment and questioning. Mm. Um, I found if you stick with it, though, there's usually something in that that uh, is a teaching uh, for sure. me, you know, even mm -hmm. why I'm questioning what I've been projecting, mm -hmm. um, who is the real person, what were my expectations of them? Um, yeah, so there's something to that, hey, just the sticking with a teacher. Absolutely, yeah. And and I think that's actually one of the things that attracted me the most to Bolad's Kitchen was was actually the commitment that they were asking for. And Martine was very clear, you know, this is not um, a get spiritual quick path, you know, that there's, he wanted, he fully believes and stands by his um, belief that you have to go the route, you know, there's no quick way. And, um, and in a world where everybody's offering quick results, he's one of the few that very openly says this is not quick. And, um, and I, I respect that and was really attracted to that. And it's hard. It's very, very hard. Um, you know, there's, there's, we were speaking about the, the financial and the time commitment, but the, the spiritual journey of those teachings is huge. And it, there's a lot of resistance that we have from our, our conditioning, um, you know, that will bring up all kinds of reasons why we should stop going. Um, and so I absolutely think it's important to, when we come to those moments of question or projection or frustration or anything to do deep inquiry and really see where that's coming from. And if, yeah, if you can stick with a path and really go the route, then there are deep rewards um, and deep beauty within that. So hmm. I agree. Hmm. Now, it sounds like a big part of his school is learning handcraft mm -hmm. of all different kinds. Like it sounds like I'm kind of amazed when I hear reports from people who have gone, uh, like the variety and diversity of handicrafts and mm -hmm. art, arts and crafts, like the singing and all that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, does he teach all of this personally? Or does he have guest people come in like specialists in, I don't know, leather work or something? He does a lot of the teaching and he also has uh, guest, you know, teachers and guests specialist we could say come in um so there was one year that we did um felting and we made felt carpets and he had uh i think it was three women from 
Kyrgyzstan come. And they, all of them came from family lineages of uh, felt making. And um, they came and guided us through the whole process. We did the traditional, you know, Kyrgyz process of making felt carpets, which is phenomenal. And, and we produced, we, we each did our own small little felt carpet. And then we produced, I think, or not, I think it was maybe two or three large size carpets that then ended up going on the floor of, of the hall that we, we study in. Um, and sometimes there would be, he would invite students from other classes. So he has multiple classes. Um, when we were, we were smelting copper once and some of his students from his longest running class uh, came and they taught us how to use the bellows and make the the forms and um, yeah so he it, it's a combination and he also does uh, of course a lot of the teaching and I think you know, he, he has a knowing of how to do all of the things that, you know, he brings people in to do, um, his, yeah, his work with his hands is amazing. And he's certainly done a lot hmm. himself. Um, it, it feels kind of overwhelming to me when I see someone like him, uh, who's built this life that, hmm. um, is so outside the kind of cultural societal norms of North America. Um, like, is this what it takes? Is this what a soulful life looks like? And mm-hmm. I mean, of course, now these days, uh, it's hard to kind of get started on that kind of alternative lifestyle because of mm-hmm. land costs and everything else. Um, is one of the ideas from that the exposure to all those different arts and crafts uh maybe not that you're going to live a off-grid lifestyle but maybe you find one or two things that uh really connect with you and that that you stick with or like it's it doesn't seem so much about like giving you skills to live an off-grid um lifestyle or something but it's it's about finding something an art or craft that uh, resonates with your soul that you will then continue to do. Um, am I getting the right sense of that? Yeah, I th- I think um, Martin's very clear that you're not getting a certificate at the end of this. This is not about you getting a job. You know, none of that. Um, and I also think that it's, I, I mean, I don't want to speak for him, obviously, but my understanding of why he's bringing in the crafts in addition to, or the handwork, in addition to the teachings um, is because when we step into that, when we have the capacity to create beauty, we then have the capacity to feed the holy. And so there's, there's a part of us that, um, you know, within our uh, deep time DNA knows about, knows how to do all of these crafts, knows actually how to rehydrate, 
uh, a culture that um, has been oppressed or suppressed or lost over thousands of years, that memory is still in there. And it's that memory that gives us the capacity to feed something beyond our own life. And that's what my experience, from my experience, that's what Bolat's Kitchen is about. It's it's not even, it's not about satisfying my soul. It's not about, you know, well, I need something to feel okay in my life. Not about that at all. Um, and yeah, he's very clear. This is not about you being okay. This is about feeding something beyond yourself as feeding life beyond your own to address the the current but um and forever debt that we have to the holy to somehow address or participate in the spiritual ecology so it goes far beyond our own individual path and yet that's you know finding some soul connection finding some spiritual um, nourishment for ourselves is it happens that's but to me it's like that's a byproduct of what the actual intention is so we are really we go there we gather to feed the holy that's what we're there for Mm -hmm. yeah and there's something about that that uh is kind of getting to the root cause of maybe our individual ailment um is that we lack that capacity to to feed the holy um Mm -hmm. and if we don't if we don't respect that obligation in a way that's like at the root of our own individual soul sickness Mm -hmm. so it's a it's a kind of a therapeutic approach that's not centered on the individual and someone's own self-improvement or anything like that um but it does yeah have that effect But it's directed toward like feeding the soul of the world or the holy. uh, Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's very, I mean, not very common in this day and age to make that the focus. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and this ties into a lot of um, the story work um, that I'm involved in, where a lot of the stories are about initiation. Um, or, or, yeah, embody initiation. And we, over time, because we have lost initiation in the dominant culture currently, there's, there's this, and there's, you know, these trends to grapple back towards it. But what's happening is that we're grappling back towards it from the lens of having lost it, which means that we're trying to get something for ourselves that is like initiation is very commonly misunderstood as it's about the individual. It's not about the individual at all. What happens to the individual is a byproduct of initiation. Initiation is about the seasonal feeding of the holy. Where the whole thing is that they, the initiate goes in. There's a lot that happens obviously during initiation, but it is about remembering and feeding the holy. Right. Yeah. Like the initiation is an initiation into your responsibility. Like now that you're an adult, here's your job. And it, it's not about you. 
Yeah. It's, I would say it's a marriage. Mm. That it's actually, it's, it's a marriage to mm. the holy. That that's actually your first marriage. And then only once you've done, once you've stepped into that marriage and then returned to your home, your village, that at that point you can step into a human marriage, if you choose, um, without the hunger for that holy marriage. Right. And all the complications that can happen in a in a human marriage when uh that initiation into the the spiritual marriage hasn't happened. Uh yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Because in the absence of it, there's then this like hunger and searching for that holy being in another. Yeah. And so it's that leads to all kinds of problems. All kinds of problems. <laughs> yeah. Disappointments, resentments, because <laughs> yes. your partner isn't the divine masculine or feminine. They're just exactly. a human. They're just a human. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That the initiation is a marriage uh between the individual and the holy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've never heard it put that way, but it's uh it's it's evoking something. Um so Speaking about stories, um, obviously you were kind of involved in storytelling uh, as a video maker mm. to some degree, right? Uh, did you have, I mean, being in Martin's school in Bolat's Kitchen, was that your initiation into working with stories on a, on a say, a deeper level uh, or a more spiritual level? Yeah. There's, I, I also have studied with, um, within the lineage of John Young, um, in the Wilderness Awareness School, and um, that's where sort of storytelling was really brought to me, um, and, but then alongside that, I was also studying at Bullets Kitchen, where. There's not so much about storytelling. Martine certainly tells stories. Um, and there's an understanding that's passed on around storytelling. Um, but within Bullet's Kitchen, that's definitely where I first had um, the opportunity to step into a story and really understand that there are multiple layers to that story. And that the stories carry vestiges of an intact culture of a deep spiritual origins. And that blew my mind because I had, I had studied literature in university and I had never even had a hint that there was something more there in this, the way that it was presented at university. I think that there was an intuition on on my part somehow that led me to Bola's Kitchen. Um, but it really, yeah, it really blew me away when I could read a story, <clears throat> excuse me, and I don't, you know, to me, it's kind of a boring old story. And then I would go to Bola's Kitchen and go through it with Martine and Martine would really open up and move the story within us. And yeah, it was, it was life-changing for me, for sure. Hmm. 
Yeah, it's something I've been looking at uh, these days, like the different, the way that we learn to interpret and analyze stories in our education system Mm -hmm. from this, like, from a a very particular perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's like the story is there to be analyzed and Mm -hmm. picked apart and interpreted Mm -hmm. um, in order to make meaning of the Mm -hmm. story, Mm -hmm. you know, relative to our consciousness. what were some of the ways that uh, Martine worked with stories that were a revelation to you or were different from what you learned in school? Well, I think to get a really good sense of it, um, one, you could come to Mythology Club. And just, I mean, I just have a humble little hint of what, you know, um, Martine offers. But um, I do... I learned a lot from him. And so, you know, I step into it as best I can. Um, But if you read his book, uh, The Disobedience of the Daughter of the Son, there's, he tells a story and then he goes through the five different layers of the story. And so that's it right there, really. Um, And he would give us a story to read before our session and let's just say it's Parseval and we're expected to read the story beforehand and so I would read the story and uh, as I said I wouldn't really see much in it and then Martine would read he would go through the whole story we would read the whole thing he would read it and then he'd stop at certain points and and then basically turn it over to us and say, so what's what's going on here? And we would do our best to, to bring something up. And, um, and then, you know, he'd go through it. And really, I think uh, he introduced stories as riddles to me. And the understanding that they're all riddles. They're, and so they've got this expansion to them that if we go through and we look at the individual words we look at why something was said in a particular way um, we do the research around if there's a particular stone that's mentioned or a particular mineral or a particular plant do the research of those that plant or that stone or, or whatever is being talked about and then the story just starts to open up and blossom and it's phenomenal what happens Mm -hmm. yeah yeah um i i recently did a what i call this slow read or a slow walk through iron john Mm -hmm. uh, and i took eight weeks with a group of men and it was kind of an experiment for me because i've never worked with the story over that length of time before Mm -hmm. and uh i didn't quite know what to expect you know i'd read Robert Bly's book on Iron John many times since I was, you know, 19 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, you know, I at least understood his interpretation of the story and how he uh, kind of unpacked that riddle. But there was new and surprising things that came to me over this eight weeks that I, <laughs> very unexpected and uh, very disruptive, mm-hmm. actually, in terms of my understanding of that story. Mm-hmm. And it was it was very mysterious the way that story expanded when I gave it time and I really uh, stayed with it. 
and like you said did the research like when something would mm-hmm. come up that i was like hmm no why why this like why is iron john iron mm-hmm. in this story you know that was a big question that came up to me and mm-hmm. i just started doing research and following my intuition and mm-hmm. uh had an experience of iron john coming to me in a dream mm-hmm. and posing wow. some questions to me that led me down areas of inquiry that i wouldn't otherwise have gone into mm-hmm. and that revealed something and it was <laughs> such a kind of a wild experience and it gave me a whole new respect for um taking time with a story mm-hmm. not just uh you know going to some workshop where they're going to talk about parsifal and they're going to mm-hmm. talk about how uh, uh, marie louise von franz interpreted it and mm-hmm. you know nailed every symbol down this is what it is this is what it is mm-hmm. uh, but to give it time let the story reveal itself to you it, it like reveal its hidden meaning to you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's something that's quite curious to me because, you know, one thing that Martine says is that as soon as a story is written down, it's dead. So when that shift from oral culture to written culture, that's that's basically the the death of these stories. And at the same time, there is still a living of the story that that happens. And then when we engage with the story, it becomes a relationship and there's there's ways in which the story starts to find its way into our lives there's our life starts to mirror back certain parts of the stories or give us guidance there's some way in which the story is nourished by our tending to the story and it's a reciprocal relationship when we really spend some time to engage Mm -hmm. again it comes back to that um the value of commitment Mm -hmm. and and sticking with something Mm -hmm. um especially like with a story when you think you've got it and you're Mm -hmm. kind of done with it like oh yeah i know that one on to the next one for me to master and i can put Mm -hmm. it in my uh you know my medicine bag of stories and (laughs) (laughs) but to really uh stick with it uh yeah, you might be surprised what comes, what the story has to tell you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a sense of, like you said, like a revivifying of something that's been um, kind of preserved in amber. You know, once mm-hmm. the Grimm brothers wrote it down, that's the story. Mm-hmm. I think um, those characters are still living in the imaginal and mm-hmm. um, maybe still have new things to say. Mm-hmm. And they might even correct the way that they were um, recorded, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like that's been an interesting thing. Like uh, just because the Grimm brothers wrote it down a particular way, like they were collecting stories and, uh, and kind of like codifying them in some instances. Um, but there's, there might be some, uh, I don't know, some alternate dialogue that was lost or, or, or there may have been a mistranslation or a misinterpretation along the way. For sure. I mean, one understanding that that's been passed on to me is that all of these stories have done what they can in order to survive so the stories have been shifted distorted changed over time in order to to continue to survive um like underneath the the hand of the imperial mind or of of the current oppressor within a, a certain land so with successive waves of oppression or 
colonization, this the 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 stories that are from that land that are in that land then have to sort of shape shift a little bit in in order to survive in order to go sort of like under the radar of you know what is not okay or what is okay or so so and I think that's why it's important to look at different you know different translations different versions of a story to really get a sense of you know what's happening with this story or what has happened with this story mm-hmm. yeah i'm I'm thinking particularly of uh the story of parsifal and the holy grail yeah and um what uh christianism uh forced that story to do like from that perspective yeah. that the story will adapt in order to survive mm-hmm. um and so you may have to peel back some of those colonial layers mm-hmm. of uh interpretation or obfuscation in order to get down to the kind of the pagan core of the story Mm -hmm. yeah and i also think that those christian layers you know in in the early days of of christianity and and land-based traditions there was a lot of you know sharing and and overlap and so more and more as as i go i learn i'm i'm learning to really see okay when this first happened it was a very different time there was different relationships it's different than the way it is now and i'm i'm curious you know how there was actually some some mutual support at the time which you know there was also a lot of devastation that happened um and there's more to the story there's mm-hmm. you know yeah so. um christianity just didn't come in one fell swoop no exactly yeah yeah and there was a lot of uh interesting adaptations that had to happen so that it would be accepted in in pagan europe for instance exactly yeah exactly yeah uh have you are you familiar with this uh old poem called dream of the rude no i'm not this is one of the things that I'd never encountered until Iron John came along and said, Hey, you might want to check this out. Mm. And uh, it's one of the oldest known recorded uh, um, English poems. And it's mm. one of those kind of like epic long form poems. That's it's like a poetic story in a way. And it's mm. um, uh, told from the perspective of a tree that has been chopped down and made into the crucifix uh, for Christ. But it's told from the perspective of the tree and the tree continues to speak even as it's made into the cross and undergoes the crucifixion along with Christ. And it is one of those instances where the pagan and the Christian are in dialogue with each other. And it's not clear whether um, the kind of, it's a purely pagan story that's trying to um, preserve something in the Mm. Christianization of the old world. Or if it's a it's a kind of a dialogue and a, and syncretization of the pagan mm-hmm. and the Christian, mm-hmm. um, or if the Christian aspect of the story was uh, put on it because the people who originally wrote down these stories were the literate monks, mm-hmm. and so they had their own agenda. And so it's not really clear, but it's one of those things where the story just, uh, well, it has its own story to tell. Yeah. And it's it's a fascinating thing. Um, I've never encountered anything quite so strange in that 
clear mixing of the pagan and the Christian at that mm-hmm. time. Yeah, beautiful. Um, well, can we talk about the story, Iron John? Yes, please. was an excerpt of a longer conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast, consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Thanks.